Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you. My name is uh, Jeff Rendell. I serve uh, as associate pastor over at Meadowcroft Presbyterian Church, uh, which is not far from here uh, at all. But I've been here a bunch of times, and so I see a bunch of familiar faces today. And just so glad uh, that I could spend this time uh, with you and hope you had a wonderful Christmas week and looking forward to uh, the new year. Our, our text today is Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 45 to 52. This is one of my favorite uh, passages, so looking forward to getting into uh, this with you all this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read Mark 6, uh, 45 to 52. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dis- while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind seized, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you so much for this time this morning. Thank you for this wonderful passage. And uh, we are grateful uh, to be together this morning to worship you and to hear from you uh, in your word. Pray you would help me, help all of us. We pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would move and work among us this morning uh, as, we, as we hear your word preached. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was about uh, 16 years ago. It was late at night. My wife, uh, Catherine, and I were in bed, and we were drifting off uh, to sleep. And our oldest daughter, Caroline, who's here today. Hi, Caroline. She was uh, about one at the time, and she was uh, safely in her crib uh, where she was every night sleeping, and all of a sudden, uh, we heard this noise, and I was like, you know, what was that? And Catherine, uh, like any mother of a toddler, just wanted to go to sleep and stay asleep, and she told me it was probably just something falling off a shelf, which, why would that happen? But it sounded a little bit louder than that uh, to me, but of course, I didn't want to get up either, uh, so I just continued to lay there. But the problem was that wasn't the last noise uh, that I heard. I heard this like bump, bump, bump. And I heard the noise, and it seemed like it was coming closer, and it was right outside in our hallway. And you know how it is when something like that uh, is happening. You know, my heart started to beat faster. It just felt like something was going on in our house. I didn't know what it was. And my eyes were were wide open at this point, and they opened even wider because the door kind of creaked slowly open. And And at that point, like, I could hear my heart thumping in my chest. It's like someone is in our house. Uh, they've probably come for me. What, what is happening? What is going on? There was a lot of fear in my heart as the door opened. Who could this be and what do they want with me? Finally, the door uh, opened all the way and then toddling through the door was our one-year-old Caroline saying again and again, I fell, I fell. And Caroline, for the first time ever, Uh, had found a way out of her crib, and she made her way in her little sleep sack uh, from her room uh, to ours, which was an impressive achievement. The whole scene, I think, lasted about uh, 30 seconds at the most, but but I experienced, I would say, many emotions in that 30 seconds. First, I felt fear, 
Then when I realized that it was only Caroline, I, I felt relief. But in my relief that it was just my daughter, there was also like this unsettled feeling. Uh, I realized at that point that things would be different from now on. Caroline was stronger and more powerful than I thought before. She could get out of her crib all by herself, and I wasn't sure how she would wield this newfound power, and I certainly wasn't sure that I could trust her with it. That was the last time she ever found her way out of the crib. I think she did not like how it felt. Fear, relief, and uncertainty. It's, it's a rhythm that I experienced on that night. I think all of us have experienced uh, in our lives when new things happen. And this is a rhythm that the disciples of Jesus Christ experienced in a very deep way in our passage, as we just read. In this section of Mark 6, Jesus reveals himself in a new way to his disciples, and it, and it produces all three of these things for them, fear, relief, and uncertainty. The book of the Bible that, that we've read from uh, this morning was written by a man named Mark, and the book of Mark can basically be divided up into two sections, and this passage is in the first half of the book, and the first half of the book of Mark is all about who this Jesus person is. Mark is painting a picture for us of what Jesus was like, and there's several stories in this section of the book that reveal to us really the character of Jesus, and this is one of those stories. Now, every book of the Bible has its own kind of major themes, and there's one scholar that says, you know, two of the major themes of the book of Mark is that, number one, that Jesus is incredible, and that, number two, the disciples are weak and often very foolish, and we see both of these major themes very much clearly in this passage. So in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus is both immensely powerful and deeply personal. And we'll see how Jesus demonstrates this, and then we'll see how the disciples respond. And, and, and as we enter into this story, it's important for us to remember that in many ways, this is our story too. This movement from fear to relief to uncertainty is a big part of the story. But as we will eventually see as we go through this passage, it's not the whole story, and that's good news. So we see that Jesus is more powerful than we think in the beginning of the passage in verses 45 to 50. But before we see uh, the power of Jesus, Mark sets the scene for us a little bit in verses 45 and 46. So he says here in verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So we're kind of like just dropping right into the middle of the Gospel of Mark. So some context here is important. So we ask, you know, what happened right before this story? Well, right before this story, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people, and he had done so in a miraculous way. Mark tells us that what Jesus is doing here happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. And what does he do at this point? He makes his disciples get into the boat, he dismisses the crowd, and then he goes to pray. Now, why does he do all of these things? Well, think about what might have happened after Jesus fed 5,000 people. You know, one of the good things is in addition to the Gospel of Mark, we also have another description uh, in John 6 when, G when uh, John describes Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, listen to how John describes what happened. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you see what's, what's going on here. We're still pretty early in the ministry of Jesus, and his popularity is really surging uh, at this point. And Mark doesn't tell us exactly what the disciples are thinking, but I don't think it's difficult to imagine. You know, 5,000 people are ready to make Jesus king, and here, here they are, not just one of the 5,000, but even better, part of Jesus' inner circle. They're, they're close to the power. They're, they're close to this, this inner ring. And maybe Jesus is about to become king, and maybe they'll get to be kind of, you know, his main men, his, his sidekicks. Maybe it's time for all of these things to happen. But, of course, it's not time. And Jesus knows that these people want to make him king, but he also knows that that is not the plan. And so he sends the people away, and he makes the disciples get into the boat and go away from the crowd. And notice that even Jesus himself gets away. He goes off by himself, and he prays. Time with his father was so important to Jesus. We see this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus was a person, and he was with people all day. And the people around him had many different ideas and different priorities than, than his father did. The people around him may very well have wanted him to be king right then and there. The people around him might have wanted him to fight the Romans who were occupying Israel. And, and Jesus heard their voices again and again. And so it was so important for him to go and be with his father. Jesus knew that he and his father had a different plan. So he goes to pray, to talk to his father, to be reminded, to be strengthened for the work that he has to do. In the meantime, we kind of cut back to the disciples. And they're having a rough time. <laughs> Verses 47 and 48 show us a little bit of the struggle uh, that they're having it says, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Okay, so here are the disciples. They're apart from Jesus, and we see that things are simply not going well. They're out on the sea. It's getting late. And, and the same guys that, that Jesus had just used to miraculously feed thousands of people, now they can't get the boat going because of a bad wind. So they've gone from the high of the amazing miracle to the low of being stuck and really helpless out on the sea. Now, when I was younger, right now I know there's a bunch of like popular cartoons, like I think Bluey is a big one right now. Does anyone watch that? Okay, thank you. Good. <laughs> it, it's good. I, I, you know, I'm biased. I think the cartoons were better when I was little. Um, the Smurfs, He-Man, Inspector Gadget, which there's a new version, not as good. Uh, but there was one cartoon that I enjoyed more than any other, and that was the cartoon Scooby-Doo. Now, for, for those not familiar with the premise of Scooby-Doo, let, let me recap it for you. It involved a group of platonic friends and their dog. The dog's name was Scooby-Doo. And they, they traveled around together in a van, and they would, would constantly end up getting entangled in these uh, very scary mysteries. And, and the gang would always go ahead and, and solve the mystery, and, th and then they would go on their way. And I always felt like that wasn't real, a real sustainable way uh, to make a living, but certainly kind of a cool way to do it. There's probably some days where I feel like that would be fun to just go ahead and get in the van and solve mysteries. But one of the things that would happen on this show was that the gang would always split up to try to uh, look for clues every time. And, and inevitably, the most, the most cowardly person in the group, Shaggy, uh, would get paired up with the cowardly dog, uh, Scooby. And, and while they were with, with the rest of the gang, Everything would be, would be kind of normal. 
uh, everything would be fine. But as soon as Shaggy and Scooby would go off by themselves, apart from the rest of the gang, all kinds of crazy things uh, would happen. Like doors would start opening and closing, ghosts would appear, and then Shaggy and Scooby would, would of course, make things worse by panicking. Next, I just caught you up on every episode of Scooby-Doo, so if you haven't seen it, you don't, you don't need to watch it. The next time you read the Gospel of Mark, remember this. The disciples are very much the Shaggy and Scooby of this story. Because as soon as, again and again, as soon as they are apart from Jesus, things completely fall apart. And that's what's happening here. And Mark tells it this way to make a point, that these disciples are absolutely a mess without Jesus. The wind is blowing, they, they can't move the boat, they're basically stuck out on the lake. But there is a note of hope in all of this, and you see it in verse 48, that Jesus saw, that Jesus saw them in their struggle. And this is something we see again and again of God in the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, that he sees the problems of his people, and this seeing leads to action. It does that in the book of Exodus, and it does that here as well, even though the disciples don't understand it. The next verses tell us this, starting in verse 48. It says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, again, I think we have to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of these poor disciples for a moment. I mean, it is late. It is late at night. It, we were talking earlier about who's going to stay up for New Year's. I think one person said they wanted to stay up, you know. But this is much later than even midnight. This is 4 or 5 in the morning. And they've spent the night trying to get a, a boat across the water in, in a rough sea, in a rough wind. And don't forget, they had just spent the previous day at a huge, basically, feast, a party with 5,000 people, and they were all together. At this point, they are exhausted. And you've got to think that they're probably out of it at this point. And now, all of a sudden, out on the sea, here comes this person walking towards them on the water. And of course, they think it's, it's probably a ghost, and, and it feels very much like it is time for them to, to, to panic. The previous afternoon, they thought they were about to be part of Jesus's coronation, and now look at them. They're apart from Jesus. It's late. They're exhausted. They're scared. Their hard work is, is getting them absolutely nowhere. This is the picture that Mark paints of the disciples apart from Jesus. And in many ways, it's the picture that the Bible paints of life apart from God. Exhaustion, fear, toilsome, and unproductive work. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. He comes to them, and he comes to them to help them. And there's a couple of things that, that are significant in this part of the passage. Number one is, where are the disciples? Of course, we know by now they are out on the water. They're out on the lake, and it's dark. For the Israelites, the water, the water, the water, the water, the water was always a very scary thing. And if you read all throughout the Old Testament, we'll see again and again that the water was symbolic of chaos, of things that, that, that were out of control. And God often uses events with water to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his love and his action for his people. You might remember that if you've read parts of the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. He raises his staff, and what happens? The waters part, and the people go through. And then you go over to the book of Joshua. The Jordan River is separating the people of God from the land that was promised to them. And Joshua sends the priests out into the water, and the water stops. And the people are able to walk on through. 
And both of those stories and, and others deeply resonated with the Israelites because they were generally afraid of the water, and, and really with good reason. The water could be very chaotic, especially when a storm would come up. And so when they see their God control the water, they recognize the greatness of their God, and they are given confidence to trust him. Those water stories are so important, so crucial to the Bible's narrative. But even in this story, there's a difference from what we have seen before, because when we think about Moses, Moses didn't walk on the water. Joshua didn't walk on the water. Now, something bigger, something more significant is going on here. Jesus isn't raising a staff so that God will part the water. Jesus himself is walking on top of the water, and he's doing this at night. This is someone who doesn't have to ask somebody else to control nature. This is someone who can control nature on his own. And so we see he's greater than Joshua. We see he's greater than Moses. And this water, this swirling, windy, stormy lake, which feels very much like complete and total chaos, Jesus comes and stands above the chaos. And he says to the disciples, no, I am the ruler and the conqueror of the chaos of this lake and the chaos in your lives as well. And he says the same thing today to all of his disciples. See, when you see the chaos, wherever it is, when you see it on the news, I know there's plenty there, when you feel the chaos in your own life, when you feel the wrong things that you do, the suffering you experience when you are wronged, when you feel the effects of living in a world that isn't the way that it's supposed to be, when you're fearful, when you're exhausted, and when all of your hard work just feels like it's amounting to nothing, know that Jesus reigns over all of it. He really does, even when it doesn't feel like it. And I know there are times when it does not feel like it. As we'll see in our passage, he's, he's powerful enough and he cares enough to help you. So we noted that all of this happens out on the water. But there's a second thing we have to notice as well. Verse 48 says that when Jesus went out to meet them, he meant to pass by them. Now that's a little bit of, of an odd expression to use there. It almost sounds like he was like trying to race them somewhere or something like that. Um, but more likely, these words are here because they are meant to remind us of another event in the Bible. See, a long time before this, Moses, the same person we talked about earlier who led the Israelites out of Egypt, he was on a mountain and he was talking with God and he wanted to see God. He wanted God to reveal himself to him. And Moses said, God, please show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I can't do that for you. It's too much. You won't survive. But the Lord allowed Moses to go behind a rock and the Lord would cover Moses with his hand and as he passed as he passed by him. And then Moses would be able to see the back of the Lord, but not his face. And that phrase, passed by, is used in the book of Exodus and it is used here by Mark. And it seems that Mark is using those words very intentionally to remind his hearers of those words in Exodus and something he does elsewhere in his book as well. Just as the Lord passed by Moses a long time ago, so now Jesus is passing by his disciples. See, what Jesus is doing is showing them who he is. He's showing them in every way that he is God. And this introduces attention because we see again and again that the disciples had a much more limited view of who Jesus was. See, for the most part, they, they weren't looking for someone who was God. They were looking for someone who could 
help them get what they wanted. And I think we can probably all relate to this, right? We want what we want. <clears throat> it can be easy for us to, to use Jesus as a means to that end. At least I know that that can be easy for me because, because I have my own view, my own well-defined view that I've been crafting over the years of what would be good for me. Relative ease, relative comfort, the, the approval of others, the, the right amount of, of status and respect and, and so on. And thinking this way ends up missing the plot. We see here in this passage that he is the all-powerful son of God who rules over creation, who inspires our awe and our worship. And because he is so powerful, when his life intersects with yours, it will introduce attention. And he will undo you, and he will move things around, and sometimes it will feel like he is, he is wreaking havoc on your life. The author uh, C.S. Lewis understood that this is what Jesus does understood that this is what Jesus does because he is good and because he loves us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that, that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's a good thing for us uh, to think about, both as individuals and for you all as a church. We have our ideas. We have our plans. We have our blueprints of what things uh, should look like. And, and again, that's, that's all well and good. As long as we remember that Jesus himself is the master builder and that he has a vision that is more comprehensive, better informed, and simply better than ours. And part of our Christian discipleship is, is seeing our imaginations restored and, and renewed and rebuilt so that we can begin to see the great thing that Jesus is doing in us and in his church. Of course, the disciples aren't there at this point. They don't quite get it yet. They thought he was a ghost. Here they are. They're tired. They're terrified. But Jesus isn't done revealing himself to his disciples yet, and he reveals himself some more in verses 50 and 51. It says, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus has already revealed himself to them as the powerful and strong son of God. Now he reveals himself in a new way. You know, as many of you uh, probably did, uh, we spent a good amount of time watching the Phillies in the playoffs uh, this fall. And we would laugh sometimes at how the announcers uh, would sometimes describe the players, especially the pitchers. They would always say things like, you know, he's really good. He has a lot of uh, really good pitches. But, you know, a lot of times he, he just can't throw the ball over the plate. And when I would hear that, I would think, that, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> because, you know, both of those things are actually important. I would think if you're a major league pitcher, both things should need to be true. At times they weren't for the Phillies, and that's why... They didn't end up winning the World Series. The disciples knew that Jesus was powerful, but they also needed to know that he was good. 
And that's why the rhythm in this passage, I think, is so beautiful and so crucial to understanding who Jesus is. The awesome, powerful, terrifying Jesus comes up to his scared and cowering disciples and says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And while Jesus' words are good news, I think, you know, we actually need more than that, right? You know, sometimes we can probably all relate to this. We're facing something uh, scary and people tell us, hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> and that's nice and all when, when people say that, but sometimes those words alone aren't that helpful. But see, Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples not to fear. He goes beyond words, right? Actually does something about it because the wind is stilled and the long, dark night of struggle is over. The awesome Jesus is also the tender and caring Jesus. His words and his actions here perfectly bring together both facets of who Jesus is, deeply powerful and deeply personal, deeply great and deeply good. See, if we lose either of those things, we've lost Jesus, but we can't lose either of those things because that's who he has always been and that's who he always will be. However, we see in our passage that this amazing event doesn't make everything click for the disciples, and Mark tells us about it. He says they were utterly astounded. He says they didn't understand about the loaves, which is a reference to the previous story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and they didn't understand what that feeding meant about Jesus, and then Mark finally says that their hearts were hardened. Now, that is a rough term for Mark to use. In fact, usually he uses that term to describe people who were opposed to Jesus, but here Mark goes so far as to use that word about his disciples. But if you read all of Mark, you will, you will notice that there are times when the disciples really seem to get it and really go along with Jesus, and then you will also see a lot more times when the disciples don't get it, and they seem to be more of like a hindrance to Jesus than, than anything else. Overall, Mark is saying that the disciples are not the heroes of this story, but Jesus is. The disciples are weak and foolish, but Jesus is not. And Jesus remains committed to them, even in this moment when their hearts are hard. I said earlier that the first half of the book of Mark is all about who this Jesus is. Well, the second half of the book of Mark is all about what Jesus came to do. And Jesus came to go to Jerusalem where he wouldn't just tell people not to fear the chaos. No, he would step into the chaos of the most fearful situation in the history of the world where he would be nailed to the cross, where he would take the punishment from God for us, for our hard hearts. And he not only endured that chaos, he overcame it by being resurrected three days later. And his resurrection, even more so than, than walking on the water as impressive as that was, was one more way that Jesus began to push back the chaos when he came. And what that resurrection did, it did many things. One thing that happened was it formed a new community of people who were shaped by the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that went along with it. And as part of that community, there was another group of people that came along after the hard-hearted disciples that we read about in this passage. They're known today as martyrs, people who were persecuted, who were killed, often in terrible ways, because they believed in Jesus. And what's interesting is that records from the early church tell us that, that one of the passages that these heroes of the faith loved to go to was this passage from the Gospel of Mark. 
And you can kind of see why, right? I'm sure it was a great comfort to them in the, that in the midst of the chaos of the persecution, of the chaos of their lives, to know that Jesus walked on the water, to know that he was in charge of everything. And I'm sure it was a great comfort to them to know that the same Jesus says to his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now you might hear about those uh, heroes of the faith that might encourage you, or I, I realize it can also maybe make you feel a little bit ambivalent because sometimes you might feel more like the hard-hearted disciple than the one who's ready right now to, to, to give away your life for what you believe in. But that's really kind of the point, isn't it? Jesus didn't reveal himself here to his disciples because they were like being awesome. He, he didn't comfort them because they handled themselves so well and they, they earned it. He, he revealed himself to and, and comforted some scared, tired, and hard-hearted people. And Jesus loved them enough to continue his good work because he did. He softened their hearts and they were over time made new and they were made more and more the people that God made them to be. And we see this throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts. And he will do this for you as you follow him. See, if you're not following Jesus, it's good for you to just consider that there's no one else like him. There's no one who is so worthy of your awe and respect who will also love and care for you as well as he does. And I want you to consider that you're going to put your ultimate hope in someone or something and see if that ultimate hope is not in someone who is both great and good, both powerful and personal, then really it's no hope at all. For those of us that, that are walking through this life imperfectly following him, we really and truly are able to, to sing and believe the, the, the famous words of that hymn, Amazing Grace, that it was grace that taught our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. And while we recognize that we can experience that those, those first two steps that the disciples experience, fear and relief, that, that next movement, that next step of, of uncertainty and doubt, if we're honest, we'll say that, that step is still very much with us at times. And that's why the final movement and the final chapter of the story that is unfolding is in many ways the most precious of all. Because there is a move still to come from the uncertainty and doubt that the disciples experienced and that we sometimes do as well, to the certainty and clarity that Jesus will give to us when he does what he promised to do, returning one day. Not just to begin to push back the chaos, but to remove it once and for all. To relieve us from the ways that, that, that life, uh, that this life sometimes feels like rowing against the wind, how it saps us and wears us down. Hear me say this clearly. <laughs> Whatever the chaos is, in your life, broken relationships, fear and uncertainty, difficulties at home, difficulties at work, sometimes difficulties even in the church, regret over past sin, regret over missed opportunities, grief, mourning, sickness, the specter of death, whatever it is, Jesus sees it. And he came into this world once to begin to push back the chaos that those things represent. And he will return someday to remove it and to make things right. And what we get to do as the church is to wait for it and look for it and live in light of that day together. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your goodness and kindness towards us. We're thankful that you are indeed 
an awesome God, all-powerful. And we thank you so much for the way that you tenderly and carefully deal with each one of us. Thank you for the ways you've shown us this in this passage, and thank you for the ways you show us this, even in this life, as we walk through this life. And Lord, we thank you that this life is indeed not all that there is, and we thank you that one day Jesus will indeed return to put an end to all the chaos that we see in our own lives and in the world around us. Lord, we look forward to that day. We long for that day. Lord, help us to be a people who are shaped by that hope, who look forward to that day together and live in light of it, Lord. We thank you so much for this time. We pray in the great and powerful and wonderful and good name of Jesus. Amen.